can you give me some examples of algebraic thinking, that third level of functional thinking that you were talking about? I sure can. My name is Eric Normand, and I help people thrive with functional programming. So I got a question uh, about an episode I did a week or two ago about the three levels of functional thinking. So the three levels were uh, basically, the first level is just thinking in terms of actions, calculations, and data. Okay, so just kind of dealing with the fact that you've got immutable data, you want to separate your actions from your calculations, those kinds of things. Second level is start thinking in terms of data transformations and the pipelines, and you're using map, filter, reduce, those kinds of things to uh, get the data that you have to look like the data that you need in, in a very high level, higher or function kind of way. Three, the third level, was what I was calling algebraic thinking. Algebra, you're creating an algebra to model your domain. And I got a question about this in a YouTube comment. It was from P1MPS01, not to be confused with P1MPS02, uh, but P1MPS01 asks if I can give some examples so that uh, it, it's clearer what I mean by... Uh, by this algebraic thinking. So I came up with three tidy little examples that I can talk about. So that's what we're gonna do in this episode. So the first example is imagine you have, you're writing a video editor. I don't know if you've ever edited video, but if you have a GUI editor, you know, you can put clips in and overlay the clips and like make transitions between things and cut stuff out. You know, you can do all sorts of stuff. Now I want you to think for a moment how you might implement this. Okay. While I, while I'm describing this algebra, you will, you might see how this, there, there's the technical details of how to actually put the video together, right? How to render that final video so that you can, you know, output it. You could put it on YouTube or, you know, whatever you do with your final video. What the algebraic thinking is about is about how do you represent that video before you've rendered it? You're representing it in memory in a way that you can manipulate and will also uh, feed into whatever rendering engine you've got. Okay, so this is, this is how I would begin to um, describe an algebra of video editing. So we have the notion of a clip. This is a video clip. Now at heart, in the essence of the video clip, it's basically just a function, a function from time to image. So you, you give it a time and it gives you an image, right? Um, this will allow you to sample 
the video. This is this is more implementation details, but it will allow you to sample the video at whatever frame rate you need and get a frame out at whatever time you need for that for that frame rate. Okay? And so then we have to think about how do we compose these things together. So there's really two main ways to compose clips together. One is in sequence. So when this one stops playing, we'll start playing that one. Right? The other one is overlay. So this is if you want to like put some text on top of a video, you can overlay that text on top. Right? And so whatever um, you're deferring to the overlay of images. So you would ask for the frame at time t from one vi from video A and B is on top of that overlaid on top. So you'd also ask for the frame at time t for of B, and you would overlay the images. And so we kind of defer to however our image system works. That's how we're gonna overlay the images because overlaying in images is also um, you know, you could also think of that as an algebra, but we're not going over that. We're just going over this, these clips. Then there's also stuff like trimming, right? So you want to cut a sub clip from this clip, right? And you can actually break it into two operations. You can trim from the left and you can trim from the right and you'll, you'll have something left in the middle, right? Um, and with these operations, you can do basically anything you need to do with the video. Okay, there's going to be some things that are done more on the frames of the video. So, for instance, you could transition, you know, fade to black kind of thing. Um, that would be done uh, at the image level, but you need some way of representing that um, as a uh, as part of this algebra, right? That this is a transformation not on so okay you know here's the thing we're all playing with time here right this is a function of time the only input you have is time then you have the output right so um, the input you have is time so when I take clip A and I take clip B and I sequence them so that B comes plays after A I make a new clip and that clip basically when I ask for a frame at a certain time, it will, if it's less than the length of A, it will give me the frame from A. It'll ask the function A, what's your frame? If it's greater than the length of A, then it'll subtract the length of A from the time and call use that time to, uh, to pass to B, and it'll get a frame from that. Right, so this is a very simple composition, a simple way to compose that doesn't require like complex math or you know a real understanding of um, like video formats and things like that. It's simply um, a very easy implementation. It's either uh, ask A or do a simple like subtraction and then ask B. Okay, so that allows us to compose these two things in sequence. And we've already seen what happens if I put B on top of A. We're going to ask A for its um, frame at that time, and we're going to ask B for its frame at that time. And then we're going to 
do whatever image overlay we have for those two frames. Now you can also see that we're going to have some issues where um, we, we, could, we have to solve like, well, what if I want B to start later like than A starts, right? I want to overlay B, but I don't want them to start at the same time. Well, you can make an empty video, an empty clip, right? That has, that returns an image that's just transparent, right? And so then the overlay will, will not, the overlaying a transparent on top of A is not going to change it, but it makes it start at the right time. You can sequence that empty clip, which has a length, uh, before you, but uh, you can sequence that empty clip with B and it'll start at a later time. So you can see we can start to play with these primitives that we've made and we've defined a, a formal way that they compose and we've got basically everything we need from just these very small pieces. Okay, let's look at another similar, actually, uh, algebra. Uh, this is parser combinators. Okay, so you can define a parser in terms of other parsers. This is known as parser combinators. So if you have some very primitive parsers, let's call them parsers, it takes an input stream, you could say it's a string, and the only thing it does is it looks for one character, you know, and it succeeds if it finds that character, and it fails if it doesn't find that character, right at the beginning, right? The first character of that string, it's going to compare. So you've got this very primitive, easy to implement operation. Now, how do you use those primitives to make a parser that parses something more complicated? Well, you have sequence, so you say we'll have to match A, and then a B, and then a C, and then a D. But really, the sequence can, can work with only two parsers. So you take a parser that matches A, and you take a parser that matches B, you compose them into a parser that matches A, then B. Right. It's very, you know, you could, you could implement it very simply. You could, you can already see how to do it. That f first you match A on the string. If it succeeds, you drop the first character from the string and then you try to match B on that new string. If that succeeds, you're done. If, it, if either of them fail, the whole thing fails, right? Very simple means of combining, right? All right, now that's not enough because you need some choice. What if I want to match A or B? Well, you need a thing called alternative, alt, something like that, that takes an A, and if, it, if A fails, then it tries B on the same string. It doesn't remove it, okay? But if A does pass, if it succeeds, then it doesn't call the B, right? So in this way, you can compose up from these very primitive pieces an entire parse tree, parser, that will match certain strings, right? And this is like a context-free grammar that you can create. Um, notice it's got a lot of similarities with this video editing algebra. The video editing algebra had sequence. This one also has sequence. And notice that they're monoids. 
We went over this in another episode. Monoids are uh, operations. They're binary operations that take two things of the same type, and the thing they return is of that same type too. Okay, so the three pieces, the two inputs and the one output, are all the same type. You take two parsers, you return a parser. You take two clips, you return a clip. There, it's a monoid. Um, and uh, the other thing about monoids is that the grouping doesn't matter. So the order of operations doesn't matter. You should you should look look that up in in past episodes. Uh, I just did one on. Uh, the difference between associative and commutative. Monoids are associative and they have an identity. So like the empty clip would be an identity. It doesn't do anything when you sequence. If you have a clip of zero length and you sequence it with some other clip, it's just going to be the same result as that other clip. Same with the parser. If you sequence um, the, you know, you could consider a uh, parser that always passes and does not consume input, that's an identity for that sequence operation. Okay, um, so notice when, it, when, when we talk about monoids, that something very useful when you're developing algebras is to find these places where a well-known, well-understood, usually named algebraic concept uh, matches what you're doing, right? So monoids are really easy and they're very powerful. So I often look for monoids when I'm doing this. Um, but there's a lot of other algebraic properties as well. And this is where a lot of people um, find value in category theory when they're programming because a lot of these things, um, these algebraic properties were developed as part of category theory. Okay, I want to go over one more. Uh, this is the third example. Uh, this one is not a monoid as far as I can see. Um, uh, it's more like a little state machine. But it's modeling an asynchronous value. So this is a value stored on a server. Let's say you, you're on the browser. You're programming the browser, the front end. And there's a value on the server. And you need to get that value. But there's time between when you initiate the request and when the response finally comes back. And you want to model that somehow. You want to model that the request is in flight. You know, maybe you need to show that loading spinner. Often, if you kind of do it in a, like a jQuery way, it, you don't really model it uh, as much as rely on a sequence of actions to happen. So you make the request, and then that fires off, and while it's still in flight, you modify a DOM element to show a spinner. You know, you make the spinner visible. And then when the request comes back, uh, you, you hide the spinner, and you set the value. So you do everything in an imperative way. Right. And this works out for a lot of cases where, you know, a lot of paths that could happen, but it doesn't completely capture it and it doesn't allow you to reason at a higher level about it. Uh, like, for instance, if you have multiple things you're waiting on now, it's like, I don't know what to do anymore. Um, so what if we modeled this thing as a value, the whole state? 
Uh, and so you could draw out the timeline, you know, okay, the value is like uninitialized. It's un, you know, unrequested yet. It's just, it's like undefined, unknown, whatever you want, however you want to call it. It's like this initial state where you don't have the value yet, but you haven't even started looking for it yet. Okay, then you make, uh, then, then you realize you need that value, okay? And so you're going to transition to a new state, which is like a loading state, okay? And so then the request comes back. Now it either succeeds or it fails, okay? Let's say th those are the two options. So you need to have a state that for each of those that it transitions to. If it succeeds, boom, you can store the value in some, some you know, w uh, state uh, saying that you got it, you're ready to show the value, you don't need to show loading anymore. And if it failed, you might have some other thing like we're gonna do, we're gonna retry three times. You gotta keep track of that state. But notice, this is also an algebra because you can look at every state that the the value could be in and you could look at every possible event that could happen to it so we could make another request right and so what's interesting is you could have these cases that show up in your in your web app and you just haven't even thought of for instance what if we make the request but we already have a value what state do we transition to um, looking at it algebraically and seeing that there's all these states and there's all these events you have to multiply them out and see what to do in each possible case. But when you do that, you create a kind of algebra that composes the, the, this value with the events that could happen to it. So the events that could happen to it are I initiate a request, uh, I get a positive, you know, successful response back, or I get a, an error back. Uh, th these are all possible um, uh, these are all possible transitions, and so you need to have a, uh, a a system that you know a state that like works for any possible transition, right? Um, and yes, it's a combination of current state and a result. It gives you a current state. It's not a monoid because the result or that event is not the same type as the current state. You might be able to finagle it so that it is the same type. And then you have a monoid, but uh, I think it's um, it's best not to not to try that. Just leave it as you know, current state and event gives you the next current state. Okay, so when I wrote these out and came up with the examples, I it it was very clear to me uh, that there were some principles going on here. So I want to share those. Um, one principle is that the combining forms are simple. They're very easy to write. Um, often, if you start by modeling the, like let's say in a classical OO way, you might model the video editor. And you know, you have some um, operation that's like add frames to a video. Right, and so you're, you're first of all you're mutating stuff, so that's kind of already complex, but uh, you get into like weird corner cases, like adding to the video is going to change the length, and what if something comes after it? You know, you just have this weird um, 
uh, all these things to keep track of, right? Whereas in the algebra way, it's much clearer how the things should combine. You create this unified abstraction of clip, and it has a length, and it's just a function of um, time to image, to frame. And the combinations that you can do, because it's such a limited abstraction, there's not much you can do with it. And that's, that constrains you into coming up with these simple combining forms. Uh, they have a minimum of concepts. Uh, remember with this um, video editor, we just had clips, and then we had a few operations like sequence overlay, left trim, right trim. We came up with like empty clip. There's like a minimum of concepts to, to put together. Um, the same with the parser combinators. You start with a basic one character matcher. Um, you also have a matcher that doesn't consume input but always succeeds. You probably have one that doesn't consume input but always fails. And then you have these operations to combine them. Um, the final thing is this idea of whole values. Uh, it's kind To me, it's kind of like this mysterious, not mysterious, ineffable principle. It's very hard to describe what it means. I have a whole episode trying to explore this idea. This is one of John Hughes's ideas. Uh, he's big, a big, you know, functional programming kind of, um, uh, I don't know what you call him, researcher. And he, he has this notion of whole values, uh, which basically means you have everything you need in the value to make a, com a, make a decision, make a computation from it. Often when we're programming, we will separate the values we need into different variables, right? We'll have, oh, we'll have this piece here, this piece here, this piece here. And um, it's great. it works great for this one algorithm we've got, right? But if you put them all together into a single value, uh, then that value could become useful in its own uh, right. It's got all the context it needs around it to make useful decisions, to do useful computations. Okay, uh, that's all I got, so I'm going to recap. Um, I went over the three levels of thinking. Again, this is just a scheme I'm coming up with to organize my teachings and stuff. Um, I don't know if it has any real, um, uh, only anecdotally do I have any sense that this is real, right? Um, that is really how people progress while they're learning functional programming. I got this question in the comment about uh, examples, and so the three examples I came up with are a video editing algebra, a parser combinator library, and this asynchronous value that's kind of like a state machine. And uh, then I went over three principles. Uh, simple combining form. So we talked about the different forms. They're very easy to write. Um, a few lines each. Uh, a minimum of concepts. So we, don't, we could have added other uh, interesting 
concepts to the video algebra. But notice, um, instead of coming up with like a cut clip operation, I decided to turn it into two operations. One is trim from the left and one is trim from the right. And when with those two, you've kind of broken it down more. Each one is easier to write. And so you're, you kind of have a, a, a more minimum uh, notion of what of, of the pieces that you need. And then the whole values, which is that ineffable idea that when you put stuff that goes together, it has a strong relationship that it really is um, it, it very cohesive. Uh, it contains its own context and can be useful outside of that little piece of the algorithm uh, that, you, that you're writing right now. Okay, uh, if you like this episode, you can find this and all past and future episodes at lispcast.com slash podcast. You'll also find links to uh, subscribe. Um, there, there, Every episode has video, audio, and text, depending on how you prefer at that time to consume um, and then also on the on the pages, you'll find uh, links to my email and social media. I love to get into discussions. I love reading the comments and the questions that I get on Twitter and uh, even in, in the YouTube comments. So thank you very much and rock on.